Coming up on today's episode of The Virtual Couch, can memories be implanted? Or what would you do if smoke began billowing from underneath the door and everybody around you acted like nothing unusual was happening? And could you spot a gorilla running across the screen while you were focusing on people passing a ball between one another? Most of us, if not all of us, would most likely say that we would run out of the room or that of course we'd notice the gorilla. But according to the data, that's not always the case. That and plenty more coming up on this episode of The Virtual Couch. Hey everybody, I just wanted to take a second and yes, this is uh, this is an ad, but I, I want this to be a little bit different right now. Honestly, whether or not you click through my link or follow the referral code I'm about to give you um, is a bit irrelevant. I think for right now with a lot of the things that we're kind of dealing with as a country, as a world, the, the pandemic around COVID-19, the coronavirus, that there are a lot of people that are struggling with some of their mental health challenges. And I know that because of the texts that I get as a therapist, that people are worried about getting into uh, to see their therapist, especially if they've worked on a lot of things in the past. And so I just want to encourage you to reach out to your therapist. A lot of therapists do have telehealth options available. I know that's, uh, I reached out to my a lot of my clients yesterday, let them know that. But if you if yours doesn't, or if you um, are really, I don't know, maybe this is the thing that has caused you to feel like you really do want to talk to somebody or you are having maybe an extra bit of anxiety or uh, depression has kind of kicked in, then online therapy really is, um, it does work. And so uh, go to betterhelp.com if you want, betterhelp.com slash virtual couch to get 10% off your first month. Again, I hope you can tell that the last thing I want to do is sound like I'm trying to capitalize on this, but I feel like um, betterhelp.com has been an amazing partner and I get feedback uh, regularly of people that didn't realize that uh, the world of online counseling could be as beneficial as it could be. So um, just just head over there if you want the 10% off your first month. You can use um, my code, thebetterhelp.com slash virtual couch. But regardless, just uh, if you really need help, online counseling is there and they have an amazing assessment tool to get you matched up to the right person. And obviously you don't have to leave your home. You can do it uh, video, you can do phone, they do text, email, that sort of thing. And there's uh, it's available worldwide. So let me just kind of end it there. And uh, if you need the help, please either, please reach out to your own therapist, see if they're still um, working with people, whether it's, uh, you know, over the phone or telehealth, teletherapy. And if you, if you're really struggling with some uh, mental health issues or anxiety, depression, that sort of thing, then at least give betterhelp.com uh, a try as well. And again, if you feel like it, betterhelp.com slash virtual couch gives you 10% off the first month. Um, but all right. Hey, I wish you all the best and, uh, and uh, you know, let's get to today's show. Thanks. Tony Overbay. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, certified mindful habit coach, writer, speaker, husband, father of four, ultra marathon runner, and co-author of the best-selling book, He's a Porn Addict. Now what? An expert and a former addict answer your questions, in which I play the role of the expert and creator of The Path Back, an online pornography recovery program that is helping people reclaim their lives from the harmful effects of pornography. If you or anybody that you know is struggling to put pornography behind you once and for all, and trust me, it can be done in a strength-based hold the shame, become the person that you always wanted to be way, then head over to pathbackrecovery.com and there you'll find a short ebook that describes five common mistakes that people make when trying to rid themselves from pornography once and for all. And just stop by tonyoverbay.com. Fill out the little form that says, I want to know more about what's coming up or whatever the form exactly says, because any day now I am going to release 
the tips for parenting positively during the not-so-positive times. It's going to be completely free. It's going to be a download that's going to be available. It's a video. It has been recorded. It's now being edited. And I just want to get this out to you right now because I know there are a lot of people that have kids at home and they have kids at home for extended periods of time. And it's just everything I could think of about parenting to just kind of uh, brush up our skills on parenting and turn this opportunity where we have our kids around for so, so much that turn it into gold, spin this into gold. So any day now that is going to, that is going to be available. So please check. There will be, uh, there'll be more information on social media. So that's a little plug to go check things out at Virtual Couch or Tony Overbay Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist on Facebook. And I, I cannot wait to get this in your hands. So that will be soon. So today's episode, I just wanted to step back, not necessarily do anything that was talking about uh, coronavirus or COVID-19 or, you know, if you've listened to the last couple of episodes, I've tried to take a little bit of a different angle and talk about why it's hard to touch your face, talk about why everybody is um, desperately trying to buy a whole bunch of toilet paper. But today I just wanted to, I don't know, for lack of a better phrase, have a little bit of fun with, I went, I found a website. It's one that I've gotten jokes from in the past called BoredPanda.com and they have an article that is called 28 psychological experiments that revealed incredible and uncomfortable truths about ourselves. And I went through and I handpicked about five or six of these psychological experiments. And I just, I think you're going to enjoy them. So let's, let's get to the first experiment. Okay. Here's one that I thought was pretty interesting and it can show how important semantics are, the words. And as a couples therapist, I can't even begin to explain how important semantics are. Quick example is long ago, I had a couple in my office and the wife would use the word, I feel abused. Husband would get very irate. Um, finally, we, we really talked about what abuse meant. And let's just say that if husband had grown up with physical abuse and wife had grown up in a pretty peaceful family, then her using the word abuse means something different to husband. And so semantics, once we defined what that felt like or what that meant um, for each person in the relationship, then we were able to have a little more productive communication around that. So, so here's where I'm going with this. In 1974, this is called the car crash experiment. It's by researchers Loftus and Palmer, and it was designed to prove that semantics or wording a question a certain way would influence a participant's recall and have them see or, or believe something different about a, an event. So participants were asked to estimate the speed of cars using different forms of questions. So estimating vehicle speed is something that people are typically pretty poor at. Uh, I think there's a joke in there about if you're a highway patrolman, do you know how fast you were going? And the person always says that they were going under the speed limit officer. But the participants watched slides of a car accident, and then they were asked to describe what happened as if they were there, as if they had actually witnessed that car crash. And they were put into two groups, and then each group was asked a question about the speed using different verbs to describe the impact. For example, one group was led with how fast was the car going when it either, they used the words, the verbs smashed or collided or bumped or hit or contacted the other car. So the results showed that the verb itself conveyed the impression of the speed of how fast the car was traveling and altered the description of the participants that were describing the car crash. So participants who were asked the smashed question, so how fast was the car going when it smashed into the other car, they thought the cars were going much faster than those who were presented the question as how fast was it going when it hit the other car. So the participants in the smashed uh, condition or that group reported the highest speed estimate, uh, 40.8 miles an hour to be specific, followed by collided was 39 miles an hour, bumped 38 miles an hour, 
hit 34 miles an hour and contacted 31 miles an hour in descending order. So in other words, what this research or this project showed was that eyewitness testimony would be, could be biased by the way questions are asked right after a crime is committed. So that can, can play a big role in things like confessions or interrogation or that sort of thing of how that question is presented. Okay, so here is another one. In this experiment, uh, people were alone in a room and they were filling out a questionnaire and all of a sudden smoke starts coming under the door. So what do you do? You would get up and leave. You would tell somebody in charge. Would you do so without hesitation? That is what we would assume that would happen. So imagine the same situation, except that you are not alone and there are several other people who seem to not care about smoke coming under the door and entering the room. Again, what do you do now? And this is one of those where I would like to think that I would still say, hey, there's smoke coming under the door. We need to get out of here. When alone, 75% of people reported the smoke almost immediately. So 75%. The average time to report was two minutes of first noticing the smoke, which if you're listening like me, I would imagine you're thinking it wouldn't take me two minutes of smoke pouring out from under a door for me to leave. But however, when two actors were present who were working with the experimenters and they were told to act as if nothing was wrong, only 10% of the subjects left the room or reported the smoke. So 90% of the subjects actually kept working on the questionnaire while rubbing their eyes and waving smoke out of their faces. So yet another example, I don't know if we would call it that herd mentality, but how people respond slowly or not at all to emergency situations in the presence of others who are not taking something as seriously. So it just shows, again, we rely so heavily on the response of others, even if it goes against our own instincts. And uh, it's it's almost as if the herd or the group or the pack says that everything's okay. Well, I guess everything must be okay. So, and I think that maybe this is, again, one of these examples where we can just take away from this, that if I really feel like something goes against my core values, smoke filling a room and me having the potential to be caught in that room filled with, filled with smoke, that I would make a better decision than, hey, what's everybody else doing? Okay, this is a fun one. This one is about memory and and basically implanting false memory. It's called the Lost in the Mall experiment. So this was an experiment uh, is about memory implantation, a memory implantation technique used to demonstrate that, according to this board panned article, I love this word, confabulations about events that never took place, such as having been lost in a shopping mall as a child, can be created through suggestions made to experimental subjects. So this was first developed by an undergraduate student of psychologist Elizabeth Loftus named Jim Cohn as a support for the claim that it's possible to implant entirely false memories in people. And again, I feel like I can make a couples therapy joke here or observation as well. The technique was developed in the context of the debate about the existence of repressed memories and false memories. And again, I want this uh, this episode to be a little bit more um, fascinating, lighthearted, but that repressed memories, false memories, uh, that might be a deep dive for another day, another episode of The Virtual Couch. But in this one, Cohen enlisted his mother, his sister, and brother as subjects. So he assembled booklets that were containing four short narratives describing uh, childhood events, and he instructed them to try and remember as much as possible about each of those four events and write down those details over the course of six days. So unbeknown to the participants, one of the narratives was false. So it described Cohn's brother getting lost in a shopping mall at around the age of five and then being rescued by an elderly person and then reunited with his family. So during this experiment, Cohn's brother unwittingly invented several additional details of that false narrative. So by the conclusion of the experiment, during a tape-recorded debriefing, 
when told that one of the narratives was false, Cohn's brother could not identify which one and expressed disbelief when he was told. So what that means is that when Cohn's brother was told that, hey, you actually weren't lost in the mall and rescued by an elderly person, he, he did not know that. He didn't believe that. He wasn't even sure of which one of the narratives that were in this book that he was, that his brother was told to write as much as you can remember about that narrative. Um, he didn't even know that that was a false narrative. So Loftus calls this study, quote, existence proof for the phenomenon of false memory creation and suggests that the false memory is formed as a result of the suggested event. So suggesting the event of being lost in the mall, then being incorporated into already existing memories of going to the mall. So over the passage of time, it becomes harder for people to differentiate between what actually happened and what was imagined. And so they start to make memory errors. I guess I will throw a quick plug in for the couples therapy model that I use, this emotionally focused therapy, EFT. One of the things that's pretty fascinating is that when I'm doing couples work, so many times the couples are used to getting off into the weeds, so to speak. So if they say, you know, I remember this time where you said that you you didn't really love me. And the husband will say, I, I don't ever remember saying that. And then the wife will say, uh, and we can switch husband and wife, of course. But the wife will say, well, I remember it very well because we were sitting in the couch and you were wearing this red shirt and we were at our timeshare in, uh, I don't know, Boca Raton. And then the guy will say, you know, well, I didn't even have that shirt when we had the timeshare at Boca Raton. You know, I had that shirt when we were on vacation in Maui and I remember not telling. And so then they get into this. Well, no, you, I remember this or I remember this. And all of a sudden we're not talking about the fact that the wife says, I remember this time where I feel like you told me that you didn't love me. So what EFT does is that you have to start from this premise that neither person woke up in the morning and is trying to... Um, make the other person out to be the villain or to hurt the other person. So if someone says, I remember you telling me you, you didn't love me, you kind of start there where then the husband jumps into empathy mode and says, Oh my gosh, thank you for sharing. Tell me more. Tell me what you remember about that time. And, uh, and then instead of him going, I don't think that's true. It's then I, I can understand that would be really hard. Nobody wants to hear their partner say, or, or say that they don't love them. And then once the person feels validated, then the husband gets to circle back around and say, again, I'm really sorry. I appreciate you sharing that. I don't want you to feel that way, man. My memory is that, uh, that when we were in Boca Raton, um, I went shirtless the entire time, or I, I didn't remember that. But again, if that's what you remember, I'm so sorry that you feel that way. And we often find that even just that that uh, that non-confrontation can lead to then perhaps the wife saying, okay, well, you know what, maybe, maybe, maybe I'm not remembering that part correctly, or, but I appreciate you validating what I was saying. I, and I, and I'm hearing you, I understand what you're saying. So that, that implanted memory thing is pretty fascinating because it just shows how the brain works. I went to a training long ago where the, the instructor, I think they tried to call it something like brain smoothing and that our brain doesn't remember things in fragments or it can't, it won't let itself remember things in fragments. So it's going to piece things together. It's going to remember a shirt. It's going to remember a, a particular um, weather phenomenon of that day. It's going to remember times where you had a particular thing to eat. And so I just thought that was really fascinating. This is one that comes up in my office from time to time. It's called the halo effect uh, experiment. So in this experiment, it was first conducted in 1920. There was an educational psychologist named Edward Thorndike, and he asked two commanding officers to evaluate their soldiers in terms of physical qualities. So looking at neatness, voice, physique, bearing, and energy. 
uh, intellect, leadership skills, and personal qualities, including dependability, loyalty, responsibility, selflessness, and cooperation. So what his goal was, uh, Thorndike's goal, was to see how a person's judgment of one characteristic then affected their subsequent judgment of other characteristics. So we're really looking in this world of first impressions. Do first impressions truly matter? So what Thorndike discovered that was when a commanding officer gained a good impression of one characteristic of a soldier, then those good feelings tended to affect the perceptions of other qualities. And the opposite could be said as well. If a soldier had a particularly negative attribute picked up by the commanding officer, it would correlate in the rest of that soldier's results. So what, what Thorndike went on to say is that this halo effect Uh, What it refers to is the positive impressions that we get about one particular characteristic and then how that affects perceptions of other qualities. For example, um, the study says that if you find somebody to be physically attractive, then it can often lead to skewered favorable perceptions of their other qualities, such as assuming that if they are physically attractive, then they must be generous or friendly or intelligent or kind or, you know, uh, all of those things. And then unfortunately, the reverse can be true. If you get a negative impression of one characteristic, then it can kind of lead you to view that the other personal qualities are, are less favorable as well. So, I mean, just saying that the opposite is true. If maybe one finds someone not as attractive, then they may make assumptions. And on, on, you know what? And let's, uh, let's talk about uh, things that I see in my office. It's oftentimes I will. I meet with people that are, are attractive people, and they say that they are sometimes only viewed a, a certain way. Or I get people that maybe uh, struggle with their weight, or, or maybe they struggle with their appearance. And then they have this, people just make this assumption that because of that this uh, thing that's right in front of them, let's say weight, for example, that then that person must be, and then, you know, they assign these negative characteristics as well. So from this undoubtedly came the phrase, do not judge a book by its cover, because you never, you can't just say that because somebody looks a certain way that then all of these other attributes or characteristics will follow. Okay, last but not least, the one that we've been waiting for, I bring to you the invisible gorilla. So imagine you're asked to watch a video, and I'm watching it right now. It's a short video where six people, three are in white shirts, and three are in black shirts, and they are passing around a basketball. And you've been asked to keep a count of the number of passes made by the people in the white shirts. In the white shirts. At some point, a gorilla strolls into the middle of the action, faces the camera, and thumps its chest, then leaves. It spends a total of nine seconds on the screen. Would you see the gorilla? Almost, I mean, almost all of us, and, and I'm watching the video. I have to think, I wish I could have done this without see, knowing what I was doing. But I think we're all going to have this intuition that, of course, I would see a gorilla walk in there and thump his chest. He's on there for nine seconds. How could somebody, something so completely right in front of me go unnoticed? But during this experiment, which was done at Harvard many, many years ago, it was found that half of the people who watched the video and counted the passes missed the gorilla. It was as though the gorilla was invisible. So this experiment, they go on to say, reveals two things. That we're missing a lot of what goes on around us and that we have no idea that we're missing so much. That one, again, completely fascinating. Look that one up, the Invisible Gorilla Experiment. Okay, hey, thanks for joining me today, everybody. I hope this was a little bit of fun, a little something different, something maybe can brighten the day a bit. Uh, feel free to share the podcast if you if you if it brought you a little bit of humor. If it was if you found something interesting, and stay tuned for more information on this tips for parenting positively even during the not so positive of times. And I just I wish you the best. I wish you well. Please contact me contact at tonyoverbay.com if you have ideas for future podcasts. If you just have questions, I need to do another question and answer. Um, episode soon and just uh, be safe 
enjoy the time that you have with your families. I know that can be difficult with uh, with all of the uncertainty, but uh, no, we're going to get through this, and uh, and you know you're going to learn a lot of uh, things when we get to, through the other side of this. So. Hey, and so if you're still listening, let me ramble just a tiny bit, and I'll make this as quick as I can. But know that you're you're good, you're okay. There's a there's a a lot of belief in psychology that is we're kind of starting with the game rigged. That we've got a lot of these um, just automatic negative thoughts that are pre-wired within us, or based on the the way that we grew up, our childhood, those sort of things. And so a lot of times we start the game with the "what's wrong with me" story playing in our heads. And again, I preach acceptance and commitment therapy so often because what I love about it is what if what if we change the narrative to we're starting the whole where you're at right now. What if there's nothing wrong with you? What what if the way that you feel and the way that you think and the way that you react and all of those things, they come from your experiences. They call them your private experiences and acceptance and commitment therapy. And so if you didn't think, feel, react, or, or act the way that you do right now, you wouldn't be you. You wouldn't be human. It doesn't mean that there aren't things that you want to change or that there aren't ways that you would like to react a little differently or or any of that. But instead of starting the game with the man, I'm broken, what's wrong with me, let's start the game with Hey, I'm me and all the situations that are unique to me, the stuff that's you want. I'm the only person that has been through exactly the things that I have been through makes me human and who I am and have the thoughts, feelings, emotions that I do. Now, from that point, we can work on pivoting toward any direction you want, uh, toward new goals, new values, to being a, a different person, to embracing the things that you like about yourself, to noticing and learning and growing from things that you maybe wish that you could not have or that didn't have such a stronghold on you. So uh, so just know that even what you're going through right now, it's okay. If parenting is difficult, it's, it's because of the things that you've you've worked with or dealt with that have brought you to this point now. Doesn't mean that you're a failure, doesn't mean that you're broken. Just means that let's uh let's keep looking for some solutions and ways to pivot to to new directions that will help you feel a little bit better about yourself, which then does bleed over into your life, helps you be a better parent, helps you be a better spouse, helps you be a better better employee, better uh, you name it. Um but all right, I promised I would stop the rambling. So go and have an amazing week and be as present as you can and know we're going to get through this and know that you you are going to learn a lot of amazing and wonderful things about yourself, your spouse, your kids, and uh, just um, just kind of keep going back to that whenever you can. All right, I'm done. I'll see you next week on the Virtual Couch. <laughs>